uh, about InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. If you have not heard of it, watch closely. Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who will lose their lives for Christ's sake, flinging them away for love of him? These are the words of Howard Ganesh, who, when he was just 25, traded medical studies in England to become a missionary to students in Canada. In 1928, Howard began traveling across our country, urging students to see their schools as God's mission field, a place where God might capture the attention or even the very lives of their friends. Howard's vision included summer camp, creating a place of adventure where university students influenced teens toward faith in God. This risky obedience birthed InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Eight decades later, on campus and at camp, we continue to go joyfully to the front lines of youth culture, urging young people to give their lives to the wild, world-changing way of Jesus. They are still saying yes. This is remarkable considering the hurdles they face. Young people are graduating from university with staggering debt and uncertain career prospects. Too many battle anxiety, depression, and hopelessness. They are tempted by an online world filled with traps of isolation, violence, and pornography. The majority of young people in Canada no longer spend time in religious institutions. Even if they grew up going to church, they just aren't sticking around. With so many obstacles, how will they find their way to Jesus? Who will come alongside them to help them make decisions about beliefs and values? We will. We will. We will. We are going to the front lines of their world to their high schools, colleges, and universities. We are inviting them to share meals with us, engage in Bible studies, and ask for prayer, whether they have committed their lives to Jesus or not. And they are saying yes. As they spend time with us, they say yes to bigger invitations, like spending their summer serving God's mission globally or at camp. We are helping them figure out what following Jesus in their everyday lives looks like. When young people come to our camps, the unique combination of creation and community helps them get past obstacles that keep them from accepting God's love. At camp, they discover friendship and community that sparks amazing growth, spiritually, physically, and socially. We believe God delights as His kingdom comes in and through young people, now and for the rest of their lives. That's why we are committed to helping them learn how to share their faith, to pray, and engage with Scripture. We talk about what risk looks like in God's kingdom, what it means to live sacrificially, why following Jesus now and for years to come is the only way to experience full life. By 2020, we are committed to launching 20,000 extraordinary young leaders who, like Howard Guinness, are willing to sacrifice everything to see God's kingdom come on earth. Howard Guinness started living fully for God while he was still a young man. It made a difference well beyond his life. It is still making a difference today. Young people are not lost to the call of Jesus. Someone just needs to get their attention. Will you come with us? Mm. Very good. Well, 2020. <laughs> We're 2023 now. Come on up here, Xu Yin. So Xu Yin and her family have been attending our church uh, for the last, uh, last little while. And now she's one of the workers that we support every month. She has just finished her Master's of Arts in Leadership Theology and society over at Regent College in British Columbia and she's going to share this morning on the subject of winning favor from the book of Esther. Will you please welcome Shu Yin Wang. Thank you. Good morning. 
perfect things. <laughs> so that's a video, as you see, a bit outdated with that line 2020. Um, but that has not changed for university mission. And here I'm going to share um, about Quebec. So thank you for this opportunity this morning to share about the ministry and the word of God on Esther. So this is my team that I work with in Montreal. So we are over uh, Concordia, Dawson, McGill, Vanier, and uh, French-speaking CJEPs. Generation after generation stands in awe of your work. Each one tells stories of your mighty acts. Psalm 145, verse 4. I think that summarized my prayer, uh, why I'm still doing the ministry that I do with students. What basically we do is discipleship with students one-on-one, -on -one, deep relationship, and then build a, really, build a witnessing community on campus. In the next slide, it just gives you different glimpses of what we do with students on all those five fellowships. And then summer, you come thinking, oh, now we have four months of vacation. No, we don't, because <laughs> the students continue their summer. So during the summer, we usually have these three kinds of activity to engage students with scripture, like in May, or indigenous partnership uh, launched two years ago uh, with local indigenous Christians and indigenous community in June. And then Youth Bible, uh, Bible Camp in July. A family also joined us this summer, um, so that was wonderful to be, have one week of studying the Bible with high school students. And then workplace, because our hope for the young people is not just within the mission on campus, but we're able to launch them well into the workplace. So what does it mean sending them well, transition to the workplace? So we offer four days of workshop, for example, in May, and could be also a monthly book discussion with people just entering to the workplace. What this work theology looks like, now they are no longer the students in the class, but actually they have to please their supervisor, what's expected of them in their work. Or an eight-month program that threw out um, in Montreal. So what I ask this morning, invitation for you, you can pray for our Thanksgiving fall retreats. Uh, all my staff now have started to be on campus. Even yesterday, McGill, Concordia, and CJEP have started to welcome first-year students. Different activities going on. So we hopefully, by October, we're able to invite 30 to 50 first-year, not-yet-Christian students to join us, spend a week, and with us at camp. Now the book of Esther, a call, a journey of a lived faith. Let me give you a little bit context uh, why the book of Esther. So as Pastor Joe mentioned, I just finished a Master of Arts in Leadership, Theology, and Society. And the artifact of my capstone is a series of five sermons on Esther. My capstone paper is about how a secularized postmodern Christian society in Quebec could be listening. There's nothing new under the sun, meaning there's nothing human invent surprise our creator. Not the Tower of Bible, nor our request of a king, nor accusing Jesus not following the law of Moses. Throughout Jesus on earth time, 
he consistently making one invitation. Whoever have ears to hear, let them hear. Therefore, I believe our secularized post-Christian society in Quebec is not a surprise to our Lord Jesus. And he is making the same invitation to you this morning. Whoever have ears to hear, let them hear the narrative of Esther. The reason I chose Esther is what we follower of Jesus who live in Montreal could learn from Esther. There's actually no mention of God in the book of Esther. Yet, the invisible God is not absent. In Montreal, we feel we cannot mention the existence of God. But as Christian, we should not live our daily life as he is absent in the society. The book of Esther is considered to be a wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible. We can learn some wisdom if we want to participate in God's work in Montreal for the common good. I call myself, my sermon series on Esther a journey because it is a journey for Esther from not knowing she has a voice to using her voice for the welfare of others. Lastly, it is my intention that there is no visual informational presentation except this art, because the narrative of Esther was written to be heard. And I want to emphasize Jesus' invitation for us to hear. Let me start with a prayer. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the book of Esther is a living word. It is a not a moral story, nor a book of information. Scripture has been read throughout thousands of years to shape the church, to correct your people's hearts, and to bring all nations to you. This hour we seek after you, the Father, the wisdom of Jesus, and the transformative of power of the Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When you hear the word favor, what comes to mind? Does it feel good or bad as Christian? Is it earned or given? I want you to remember these two questions when we go through the narrative. Do you think it's possible to live your faith in Montreal, where people have sent the church away? No more of this religion. The church seems to have been exiled. Do you feel as if you, like the Jews, have been exiled and now living as a minority group in a secularized society? Jews were exiled to Babylon and we have heard the sermon on Daniel from Pastor Joe. Now the book of Esther is during Persian's empire, King Ahasuerus, which is his Hebrew's name, who ruled 486 BC for about 20 years. Let me give you a little bit of context before I jump into chapter two. From chapter one, we know 
the author tells us about the king Ahasuerus and Queen Vashti. So in chapter one, there were two banquets. They last six months and seven days to show the king's riches and his majesty. There was extravagant decor. Verse six, white cotton curtains, blue hangings, fine linens, purple to silver rings, marble pillars, gold and silver on mosaic pavement, mother of pearl and precious stone, on and on describing the palace and the lavish parties, banquets. So do you get the narrative's point? To show the listener the king's riches and his majesty. We have that too on Facebook, on Instagram, on news, showing someone's success, showing someone's wealth, power, and this is this king. Also, interestingly, in this book, drinking the royal wine as every man desire, in verse 7. Desire is a key theme in the book of Esther. And in other tr translation, it's called without restraint. To fulfill man's desire. That's what the king is about. Drink whatever you want for six months. You know the price of wine. And this is not any cheap wine you buy from the grocery. Royal wine lasts for six months. So this tells you the king's character and the palace culture. Now, Queen Vashti, the king commanded to bring her to show to the people in verse 9, chapter 1. She belongs to the king, just like his riches and the majesty, his majesty. In verse 11, it says, with her royal crown. You're thinking, okay, like, of course. <laughs> She's a queen, right? Yeah, of course she may have a royal crown. Why? And this is where when you read the story uh, from the Bible, pay attention to some detail. You feel like, okay, that's kind of odd, maybe obvious. But because we miss some cultural context. So from historians, they would say, actually, queen... Vashti's was probably naked and only wear her royal crown. That's horrible. In six months of banquets, this is what the king required. But Queen Vashti refused in verse 12. And now you know why she refused, if you actually don't know the piece of the cultural context. Because her husband exploited her for his and other men's pleasure. She is brave to speak up against the king's wicked request. Unfortunately, not the official and the so-called wise men around the king were as brave as Esther. I'm sorry, Queen Vashti. The opposite could not be truer. They pursue the king to issue a decree that all women in all Persians' empire cannot refuse their husbands any request, but every man be the lord of his house, in verse 22. Now, I want to learn from the Korean dramas, if you watch Netflix or any device you watch, successful way to capture the audience in the first episode. 
Do you know what do you do in the first episode? Is to show you a glimpse of the ending. So now in the last chapter of Esther, in verse three, it tells us Mordecai, the Jew, was next to a rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brother, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Mordecai was next rank to the king, but not because Mordecai was a smart in politics or he was a successful leader. But the narrator concludes because he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to his people. So Esther is a narrative of wisdom, of seeking welfare of others. Now, what you see on the screen would be five years earlier. Now we go to chapter two. Allow me hear the word of the Lord from verse one to six. Let me read it to you. From these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus has abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servant who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint official in all provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Hagar, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their anointment be given to them. And let the maidens who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jaar, son of Shemin, son of Hish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captive carried away with Jehoiachin, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, King Ahasuerus has not changed. The word letting, if you hear it, he just let other people to tell him what to do. And he do so to should be pleased his desire for young virgins. Mordecai's genealogy also actually gives us a clue about his conflict with Haman later on in the book of Esther. So from 1 Samuel chapter 15 provides the essential backdrops for the unresolved and sensual conflicts between King Saul and King Agar. The phrase in verse 6, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, repeated four times. Many times that he's trying to talk about Mordecai, this is his identity. It tells about his connection, Mordecai's connection to the exile in 586 BC. He would, not, he would have been too young, though, to be exiled from Judah. But the connection is real. He's the second generation. Now verse 7 to 9, let me read it to you. 
Mordecai had brought up Adasha, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for he has neither father nor mother. The maiden was beautiful and lovely. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his, ed his edict was proclaimed, when many maidens were gathered in Susa, the capital in custody of Hagar, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hagar, who had charge of the woman. And Esther pleased him and won Hagar's favor. And he quickly provided her with his, her, anointment, sorry, her anointment and her portion of food. And with seven chosen maids from the king's palace and advanced her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Now verse 7 tells us Esther's identity. An adopted daughter to Mordecai, whose identity is tied to the exile from home. Many maidens were gathered, tells us, and we're probably talking about 400 to 1,400 young virgins. We cannot imagine. And we're talking about probably 15, 16, maybe 17 young girls being gathered. That's the world they live in under the Persian Empire, under this king who desire young virgin. She probably feel Esther very insignificant. Esther was taken from her uncle, who had adopted her when her parents died. We would consider Esther had a series of unfortunate events growing up. And the author did not tell us anything that Esther had done. Not even what she said to Mordecai when she was taken. Esther was a little bit passive or silent here. But until verse 9, we see an action or verb. Esther pleased Hagar and won his favor. The word pleased was repeated 14 times in the short book of Esther. And one favor, repeated six times. Again, that two question I proposed in the beginning, is Hagar's favor good or bad? Do you feel Esther should not have tried to please and win Hagar's favor in the Persian Empire? Does the word favor remind you any Old Testament characters? Anyone want to guess any character or story you heard the word favor? Moses? Mary? Anyone? Some more Old Testament, even very recent, you have been hearing his name very often. Abel? No. Noah? No. Joseph? Yeah, that's very clear. Joseph was... Every Sunday you have been hearing about... <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Pastor Joe. 
Yeah, Daniel, Joseph, God was with them in the palace, in the most powerful of the time, place. Also, Nehemiah, interesting, always pray for favor from God. The Old Testament scholar, Marian Taylor, explains the word favor here. It's the covenant's word. It is explicitly connected to God. The author seems to hint the invisible God is with Esther in the harem, turning her unfortunate events into the best place in the harem and having Hagar's favor. But let's wait, verse 10 and verse 11. Esther had not made known her people or kindreds, for Mordecai had charged her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, as soon as the listeners like us attempt to make this story into a moral, good, happy ending story tale, for example, Esther endures the unfortunate events, but God is with her. So now she has a family. She and her husband bought a house, and their two children, one a doctor and an engineer. Happy ending. No, the author brings forth the tension. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people for Mordecai has charged her not to. Now, but also do not jump to our self-righteous judgment toward Esther, or she's ashamed of the gospel, or hiding her true identity. First of all, that's a, a shame of the gospel. It's old New Testament context, not the Old Testament context. Second, we are not comparing Esther as the Jews to us as Christian. The Jews were being exiled and later facing genocide. We are not facing anything death in Quebec. But we can ask ourselves, what does this text say about God's favor for God's people living in this world as a minority or not a dominated culture? After winning her supervisor, Hagar's favor, Esther continued to listen to Mordecai's advice and keep him close. Esther keeps two different peoples within her community. Now let me summarize a little bit the next 14 verses. Please go to read all the detail. It's very fascinating. But here are some few points of the summary of the next 19 verses. Now, Esther turned to the king's Ahasuerus in verse 13. She was given whatever she desired. Oh, now he's talking about Esther desired. The favor of God continued to the king's palace. Yet the author repeats to the listener that Esther is also the adopted daughter of Mordecai. While she listened to Hagar's advice, Esther has a community of two seems very different communities. Verse 15. 
When the turn comes to Esther, the daughter of Abahal, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Hagar, the king's eunuch, has charged her of the woman advised. Now Esther find favor in the eyes of all who saw her. In verse 17, you can see where's the direction of the narrative is going. Now 17, Esther is made queen. Because the king loved her more than all the women, in verse 17, and she finds grace and favor. Yet the story's tension remain. What's the tension? Esther has not made known of her people. The, the author of this book keeps telling us that she still holds that to her own heart. Because Mordecai had charged her, and for Esther obey Mordecai, just as what she was brought up by him. Esther maintained both identity, even when she became a queen of the empire, and yet adopted daughter raised by Mordecai. It seems quite extreme to the top, to the Persian empire, the queen, and yet as adopted daughter to aid you in exile. Now the last two verses of chapter in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Betha and Tirash, two of king's eunuch who guard the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were be both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. The author tells us about in verse 21, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. You wonder, uh, okay, <laughs> why detail? Again, back to the cultural context. Throughout ancient Near East, the gate was the, where, the area where justice was dispensed. While the accuser stood, the king or his appointed officer sat. So Mordecai likely worked in the administration in the service of the king. Also, throughout history, many monarchy would die at the hand of their servants like these two eunuchs. In fact, eventually, King Ahasuerus was died um, under his servants. So the last sentence here was recorded in the Book of Chronicles, also give us a nod to the ancient convention of, incident, of incidents such as assassinations attempt. It was also conventional to immediately and generously reward the loyal citizens. But King Ahasuerus did not reward Mordecai here. And then it will become very interesting how Mordecai's reward eventually 
will come to be true later in the book. Yet the tension of the story remains. The queen still have a secret, has not been known about her kinder and her people. Again, on the Netflix screen, Amazon Prime, I'm sure, <laughs> and the bottom right bar, it will tell you, click and watch the next episode. Let me give you permission <laughs> to do so with the book of Esther this afternoon to watch and listen the whole season of Esther. Only takes you 30 minutes. So, in conclusion of chapter 2, is winning favor good or bad? Again, the question for Christians. Do you feel it's earned? Esther earned it to Hagar, or she was given. Now the king loved her. Let me read you the letter to the exiles, including King Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 29th. And this is this king, Mordecai, told us that his ancestor in Esther 2. So Jeremiah was telling, as a prophet, the people, the exile, build houses, make yourself at home, put into gardens, eat what grows in that country, marry and have children, encourage your children to marry and have children so you will thrive in that country. Let me pause again. You may have questioned, does it mean marrying non-Christian is good? That question, Pastor Joe will answer, but that is not the tension <laughs> of this passage. So you will thrive in that country, not waste away. Make yourselves at home there and work for the country's welfare. Again, Jeremiah said, pray for the Babylon's well-being. If things go well for Babylon, things will go well for you. Jeremiah 29. Do you hear it? Do you have ear to hear it? Work for the country's welfare. Pray for Babylon, Persians, well-being. If things go well for Babylon and Persian, things will go well for you. Esther and Mordecai sought the welfare of the king by stopping the assassination, even though he was a lousy king. We can tell from chapter 1. Yet we know at the end of the story, this lousy king put Mordecai, a Jew, a minority group, next rank to him, second, highest power. There's something in the king seems good. Like our Quebec's government, secularism, maybe not all bad. For example, the idea of separation of church and state and state neutrality in respect of religions and deep-seated secular conviction. This idea and meant to promote the moral equality of persons and freedom of con conscience and religion. As Christians, we share these two purposes. First, every human made in God's image 
Therefore, we commit to the moral equality of persons. For example, in my children's uh, public school agenda, I see they are teaching the difference between equality and equity. That is good. <laughs> teaching a primary students to learn about the difference between equality and equity. Con second, the prodigal father parable tells us the father gives human the freedom to choose. Consequently, we advocate freedom of conscience and religion. In Quebec society, there are plenty opportunity for us to join working for Quebec's welfare. Just like your last Sunday, giving out school bed, or Christmas. Esther used all the favor that she had won, Hagar, or given by God to tell the king to seek the welfare of the Persian. So is winning favor good or bad? It depends if it is used for the welfare of others. Today, do you hear Jesus' commandment? As the Father sends me into the world, I send you into the world. Every Monday, Jesus sends you into the world. Classes, school, office, and be cashier of a restaurant, staff meeting on Zoom, etc., etc. Which wisdom we can learn from Esther to live by? One, Esther listened to different communities Mordecai, her adopted father, and Hagar, the king's eunuch. She did not dismiss the advice one or the other. Second, Esther is aware of her two communities and how they may intersect. How could your church community may intersect your work community? God has given Esther favor. The Holy Spirit go before you as Jesus sends you to work or school tomorrow. Whose favor has the Holy Spirit given you at work? How can you use this favor to seek your supervisor's welfare or colleagues or your teachers or your friends? Which wisdom can you learn from the book of Esther to live by? My, my, my. I have never heard a message like that out of the book of Esther. That You need to listen to that again, folks. There's a lot of deep stuff in there and some uncomfortable stuff as well. So very, very well done, Chu Yin. Thank you so much for breaking that down. I never, this guy, hey, hey guy, in the first, I never even thought of that guy. And what Esther had to go through, like, you really opened it up for us in a different angle. So thank you so much for doing that. Musicians, if you would come, please. And we're just going to uh, close the service in prayer. Folks, this is a, 
a very different style and I so appreciate that. So I would encourage you uh, to do your homework on this one. This is, uh, the book of Esther is a beloved uh, book, especially in the Jewish religion and they celebrate the whole thing every springtime. I still eat ham and tashin like all the time whenever I can eat it, which which kind of commemorates the demise of Haman. <laughs> it's a nice Jewish delight called ham and tashin that we enjoy in our home. But folks, what an encouraging story. What what gets it for me is that life isn't always about happy endings. Amen. And sometimes you got to go into these uncomfortable moments and win favor and there's different ways of looking at that there's different angles and you have that opportunity i have that opportunity every day would you stand with us please father we thank you for your word and how it pierces us and how it challenges us and i pray god uh, from this morning you would speak to hearts you would speak to people in their own worlds in their own situations from this timeless story would you challenge us lord to live our faith in front of people we pray together today in jesus name amen amen god bless you today remember if you're visiting come and see me at the front and i'd love to take your guest card and and greet you and if you want to come on saturday to the uh the corn boil just sign the list outside god bless you everyone <laughs>